Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the blessing of friends and associates, those who support and encourage our ministry, those who devote their time and their personal effort into making that ministry reach more people and to be more successful. But, Father, we mostly thank you for the way you have used these things to your glory and have made all these things possible. Thank you, Father, for the continuing opportunity that I have to teach and for the opportunity to take that teaching and send it out to the world. And, Lord, it is merely the work of of a man and, therefore, of little value. But, Father, because it's centered on your word and, and because your Holy Spirit is working, it can be so much more. Thank you, Lord, for that opportunity. And thank you for this the short but powerful book of Ezra. Thank you, Father, that you've shown us so much so far. And with two chapters yet to go, I know, Father, you have even more that you want to reveal. We ask, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would do that now and that mostly we would be ready for it, that our ears would be open, our hearts would be ready. Show us, Father, what you intend to show us. In Jesus' name, amen. George was 28 years old. He was single, and he was still living at home with his parents. And on one Sunday morning, George told his mother, I don't think I'm going to church this morning. First, he said, I'm tired. And secondly, the people there, they don't really like me. And then finally, he says, on top of it all, the sermons are dull. To which his mother replied, George, she said, you have to go. First of all, it's Sunday. We always worship on Sunday. Secondly, it doesn't really matter whether they like us or not. And then lastly, you're the pastor. The point in that is that serving the Lord is often a position of leadership that we don't seek, that seeks us instead. Ezra has come to Israel to serve by teaching, teaching them to know and obey the word of God. It's a role he embraced. It's one we're told his heart was set on and that he had to make some personal sacrifices in order to fulfill. He left behind his way of life. He left behind family, probably, and he has made his way to a very desolate Jerusalem. And as he's returned, he's also becoming a de facto leader within the nation of Israel because his role included not just the role of teaching, but also that of judging. And we said last week that his return marks the second stage of God's purpose in restoring people, and in this case, restoring Israel, back into their land. He had begun with them relearning how to worship with true hearts, and now with Ezra, that time of worship has transitioned to a life of obedience Because worship just can't be a a one-day-a-week activity. So that's where we've been now in this second stage of restoration. But that commission that Ezra received was also to be a judge in Israel. And though we might imagine Ezra has come into this place hoping that the people would just embrace his teaching and they would fall in line behind it and live in a very righteous way, we know that that's not real life. And when inevitably our teaching falls on deaf ears, we need someone with some authority to compel us into compliance with the law of God to encourage us, to exhort us, to discipline us, if that's the case, so that we can then do as we now know we should. And that's the role that Ezra has to play. Disciplining, disobedience is the hardest part of teaching and leading God's people. And he may not have signed up for this duty, as I'm sure he probably didn't, but nonetheless, he can't shrink back from it. He can't look the other way. He can't worry about whether someone likes him. He can't stay home on Sunday. So in Ezra 9, chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, we pick up where we left off. And Ezra writes in verse 1, Now, when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, 
The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me and I sat appalled until the evening offering. As verse one says, shortly after arriving, Ezra discovers this problem within the camp of Israel. Ezra says, now when these things have been completed, and he's referring to the events that we saw at the end of chapter 8. What were those events? Well, if you remember, that's when the traveling party of Ezra had just arrived in the city, and they had presented all their gifts to the temple authorities. And then we're told at the very end of chapter 8 that they then made an offering of a whole bunch of bulls and lambs and rams and goats. So there's probably at least a few days involved in all of those events, but still a short time, a short period of time. So at the conclusion of all of that, the princes of Israel, which would refer to their tribal elders, the tribal leaders, they inform Ezra that the people of Israel had not kept themselves separate from the people of the land. And the people they were intermarrying with specifically were the various enemies, historic enemies of Israel. They included all the Canaanites and then also the Egyptians. And then lastly, the Moabites. Moabites are not one of the Canaanites. That's a separate group of people. The behavior of intermarrying with these people is a direct violation of the law of God and of the covenant that the Lord established with Israel. We can find that in numerous places, but in one place, particularly in Exodus chapter 34, verse 10, you read this. Then God said, behold, I'm going to make a covenant before all your people. I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the peoples among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. Be sure to observe what I am commanding for this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. You recognize those? Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Otherwise you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they will play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. So as we notice, God specifically names the people in the land of Canaan, the Canaanites. In the land of Canaan, there are numerous sub-tribes, and you can distinguish the Canaanite people from others, usually by that ite at the end. So you have the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Amorites, Menentites, anything that ends in ites. They are all forbidden because they are all of the same root, that is, they're all of Canaan. And they are people that God has said that the nation of Israel may not intermingle with. You notice he says, make no covenant with them. And that's a reference to any form of lifelong binding agreement, which would include marriage. And he even stipulates later in chapter 34, as I read, don't let your daughters and sons be taken one for another. 
So the Lord forbids them from marrying these people. Why does he do that? Well, this is a teaching that would take longer if we had the time, and you can hear it yourself if you go listen to Genesis, or even if you were here for the Exodus teaching, for that matter. But the Lord forbid that intermarrying because the people of Canaan are cursed. The Canaanites descend from Canaan, the grandson of Noah. Canaan's father was Ham, one of the sons of Noah. And Ham was the one who showed disrespect for his father's nakedness in the tent after the flood. Because of his behavior, Noah spoke prophetically against that act. And in the prophetic words of Noah, the words God inspired Noah to speak, he cursed Ham's line specifically through Canaan. A curse is the pronouncement by the Lord of eternal damnation. I think we use that term sometimes too loosely. Certainly it doesn't just mean four letter words. In scripture, it means literally a sovereign pronouncement that the thing being cursed will cease to be. If it's an inanimate object, it means that it will be destroyed and eliminated. If it is a human being, then we're saying that their soul is set apart from God eternally. There is no recovery from a curse. There's no get out of jail free card if you've been cursed. Someone who's cursed cannot be saved. It's a forever determination from God. His word will not go out and be made void and he does not change his mind. So when a people are said to be cursed, they are assured of destruction. This is why after the garden, for example, after the incident in the garden, that God does not curse Adam or woman. If he had cursed either Adam or woman, they would not have had any future, nor would their offspring have had any future. So God curses the ground and he curses the enemy, but he never curses Adam or woman. Ham, interestingly, was spared from being cursed, even though he was the one who instigated the sin, because he was already a believer. He was one of the eight of righteousness that Peter says stepped onto the boat. So he could not be cursed, for he was one of God's children by faith. God will never curse his children. We are saved for eternity. But the Lord still exacted a punishment on the line of Ham and used it for good purpose, ultimately, because in cursing Ham's line in Canaan, he created a cursed people, the Canaanites, who had no future in God's providence. They were specifically called out for destruction so that As the occupants of the land that would one day be Israel's, God would be just in displacing them for Israel's sake. And even more than that, he would use Israel as his instrument to affect the outcome of the curse to destroy the Canaanite people. That is, of course, if Israel were to obey his commandment concerning that. So the Lord instructed Israel as they move into the land to wipe out all of those people groups within the Canaanite line so that the curse God pronounced would be fulfilled. And also not to intermarry for the marriage of a people of God with a cursed people has only one possible outcome, cursed offspring. So the outcome would have been the end of Israel in that respect. So God's pronouncement to Israel was ultimately to their own benefit and to the prophetic requirements of his own word. So the Lord told Israel in advance, if you succumb to the temptation to marry the Canaanites, you will be cut off as well. Furthermore, since the Canaanites are ungodly and they're cursed as a people, They're going to lead you into idolatry. A simple way to say it is you're not going to make them better. They're going to make you worse. You can't turn them to God-fearing. They're going to turn you to idolaters. So the nation was never to marry with the Canaanites. There was no exceptions, and so they were to follow that law. Unfortunately for Israel, the people often did intermarry with Canaanites. In fact, that decision produced the outcome 
that God foretold in the case of idolatry springing up in the land of Israel. They became the harlot that God warned that they would become. And having played the harlot, he put them away for a time. The result was God's judgment and the scattering of them outside the land. In fact, the whole reason we have Ezra and Nehemiah is because of what they had done previously in this regard. But now a remnant has returned to Israel. The Lord has been gracious to provide for them in many ways, even in their captivity, and now as he's returned them in this remnant. And in the course of just the short time, the less than 100 years that they've already come back now and tried to reestablish their presence, they've had the grace of God to rebuild a temple, to reestablish their lives, to have all the wealth that's been provided by the kings of Persia, to have the protection of the kings of Persia, to have God's grace left and right. And at the last stage of this, he's provided them now with a teacher who comes to model and explain and command obedience to the word of God. And yet, they're intermarrying with Canaanites. We laugh at it only because it's so hard to believe that they would do this after such a short time and with all of what's happened. Moreover, they have intermarried not only with the Canaanites, we're told, but with two other enemy groups of Israel, the Moabites and the Egyptians. Now, in these cases, the issue isn't one of a curse because these people are not cursed in Scripture, but they are historic enemies of Israel and they are just as much a corrupting influence on Israel as the others. So on the issue of corruption, you can lump them all together, certainly. And if they intermarry with these people long enough, they would cease being Jewish. So it's just as much a threat to their existence in that sense. So at the end of the day, the issue that God is concerned with here is, first and foremost, obedience to his word. And then secondly, maintaining Israel's purity, their holiness, and all of that is lost when they disobey. And notice, once again, the sin runs all the way to the top of the chain, just as it did in the last instance. The leadership of Israel is also corrupt. We're told here that even the princes and the priests are participating in the sin of intermarrying. So it seems that people are quickly in danger of repeating the past sin. And, of course, that begs the question, if God did what he did the last time, what will he do now? Having been warned once and restored, if they repeat the sins of the past, could there even be an opportunity for mercy again? And Ezra reacts in the predictable way as a result, especially for a man who's devoted his life to knowing, teaching and obeying the word of God. He mourns and he does so in a very traditional fashion. He tears his clothes. He pulls hair from his body and then he sits down appalled. It says the word appalled in Hebrew literally means two things combined, astonished and ruined. He is personally ruined and incredulous that it came to this. We can imagine what he was thinking, can't we? Haven't they learned anything? Was that earlier worship sincere? Were their hearts still true? Or perhaps these folks are no better than their forefathers. And then next, what will God do? Will this test his patience to the point of breaking? What kind of punishment awaits the people for this sin, especially in light of what the Lord has done? He seems to just collapse, as the text suggests, without any hope. Just sitting there. Maybe this is exactly the reason the Lord sent Ezra to Jerusalem in the first place. I'm reminded of another book of scripture, one that is set in virtually the same point in history. Mordecai tells Esther at one point, who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. He was saying, essentially, she must understand her circumstances as having been orchestrated by God to ensure Israel's preservation. And I would argue, likewise, Ezra has just arrived in the city for the preservation of Israel. We know the sins of the exiles here of intermarrying. This was going on long before Ezra arrived. It takes time for that to develop. So clearly the Lord brought Ezra here knowing exactly what he would find when he got here. 
he would find a nation that was already intermarrying. So I think we can conclude that Ezra's intervention is the response that the Lord is prepared to make for Israel's sin. Now, that shows us an important distinction between how the Lord works when he is dealing with the rebellious versus the foolish. Israel's forefathers had been given the law and they chose to disobey. Then the Lord brought them prophets to warn them and call them to repent. And they killed the prophets, mocking them and dismissing them. And then the Lord brought famine and he allowed Israel's enemies to attack them. But then they persisted in their disobedience. And so then the Lord drove the rebels out of the land, just as he drove Adam out of the garden. But here, on the other hand, we have a remnant of Israel who is largely ignorant of the law and doesn't appreciate the penalties for disobedience, though I'm not claiming they are ignorant of the rule against intermarriage, but they have not yet received the counsel of teachers and the counsel of prophets. They are without judges to this point, because that's why Ezra was sent. They certainly don't have leaders to inspire them to do better. They are accountable to God, but they are not necessarily accountable to their own conscience at this point or any other authority in the land. Just the fact that the princes came up to Ezra and said, hey, we should tell you something that's been going on. That's a proof in itself that these men knew that this wasn't correct. They are being led by their flesh into sin. And then again, haven't we all been at times? But still, overall, the people here were in a far different situation than their forefathers had been in when God judged them. And I think that's leading God to respond in a far different manner. One of grace and mercy, where before his mercy was spurned and his grace was trampled. God sends Ezra to Israel as a response to their sin, so he, Ezra, can bring them out of it. But that doesn't mean there's going to be consequences for the sin. They have to be taught to do the right thing, but they also have to be called to repent. And there will be some exacting of repentance here. They're going to be expected to act in keeping with repentance. The question still arises, though, for how will this group deal with the correction that we know is coming to them? So it begins as soon as the people take note of Ezra's response. Look in verse four. The people tremble, some tremble anyway, at the words of the God of Israel. Look at that phrase again. They tremble at the words of the God of Israel, which would imply that Ezra is reciting, perhaps to no one but himself, the word of the Lord concerning the prohibition of marrying Canaanites. Perhaps he's reciting the words of Exodus 34. Remember in the Jewish tradition, learned men, scribes, those who had the commission to teach, memorized the Old Testament front to back so that they had at their command at any moment the word of God. It would not surprise me then if he was not sitting there as he was mourning, reciting out loud the very thing that he's astonished they did not obey. And as the people in his presence see his reaction, which must have been quite dramatic, and they're wondering what's going on with this guy all of a sudden. And then as they hear the word of the Lord, they are convicted on the spot. They tremble, which is a sign of fear, which would tell us they're in fear of the Lord for what he might do in response to their situation. Their response recorded in verse four is an important verse to understanding all that follows in this chapter and in the next. The union of the word of God with the admonishment of a godly man combined to bring the fear of the Lord to the people of Israel. By the word of God's law, the people came to understand their sin. And as Paul says, where there is no law, there is no knowledge of sin. So as they are Hearing the words spoken concerning the law, the sin of what they've done is being revealed to them in that process. And then when they see a man of character and authority demonstrate horror at their behavior, 
they come to realize the seriousness of their actions. So in a nutshell, this is the role of a teacher in service to God's people. I have occasion for men and sometimes women to come and talk to me about teaching and they may have a heart to teach or a desire and they may want to come to ask questions about how did you get started and how can I do something similar and, and so on. And that's always a welcome conversation. But I do believe most of us enter teaching with a very narrow understanding of what God's expectations are for teachers. And we know the verses like James, it says, do not be quick to teach. We understand there's a seriousness to the job, but I don't think we have any appreciation going in for what comes with it naturally. Teachers naturally are counselors. Teachers naturally are those who must discipline and exhort. A teacher who simply espouses thoughts off the top of their head and then walks away from the situation is no teacher. Not in God's mind, not in the way it's modeled in Scripture. A teacher must bring the truth of God's word to arm them with the knowledge of God's expectations. He's got to be there explaining the rules and correcting misunderstandings and all of that. He has to remind people what they forgot. He has to answer their questions. That's the education side. But he has to set an example through his own life as well so that his words carry weight. In leading by example, that person becomes a model to show the truth lived out. And if you don't have a testimony of obedience, you lack any authority to command others to do the same. So you have to know it, you have to do it, and then finally you have to have a willingness to exhort, to admonish when necessary, to prompt repentance from those who need to know that they can do better. And this last step is entirely dependent on the first two being done properly. Because a teacher can't compel obedience to standards that the students don't understand. And he can't critique disobedience of standards if he's not keeping them himself. He's just a hypocrite. Ezra's teaching of God's word, combined with his principled display of disgust over their disobedience, led them to a corrected heart, to a conviction that prompted in them the fear of the Lord. So if you have an ambition to teach, and I certainly don't want to squelch it, Paul doesn't. He says that's something to be aspiring toward. But with that comes a sense of responsibility you can't avoid. You have to have a willingness on a personal level and in a private way to deal with individual disobedience where you see it so that you have an opportunity to truly affect the godliness of someone's life and not merely be someone who fills their head with knowledge. And we sometimes call people like that pastors or we might call them counselors or we might give them other fancy titles. But at the core of it, it's the natural working out of education and a life that models character so that someone has reason to concern themselves with what you say. Otherwise, what's the point? Equally important, the people in Israel demonstrate a willingness here through their fear of God to depart from the history of their forefathers, to react to things that their forefathers did not. While their forefathers mocked and persecuted the prophets sent to them, these people show immediate remorse. I mean, there's no indication here that they even second guess it, which is a very striking departure from the past. God delights to see people acting righteously in the first place. Right. It's better that we obey than that we sacrifice. But should we sin, he calls us to repentance so that we may be restored in fellowship. And teachers, perhaps more than any other role I know of, teachers are the means that God uses to bring us to a place of repentance. Which, by the way, is why the absence of Bible teaching is a tremendous deficit for the godliness of any group of people. For how are they to know what they do and how are they to find models to do it and how are they to be called out when they don't? In fact, the process of restoration presupposes relapse, missteps, which is why the Lord provides teachers in the second step. Why at the second step of restoration are teachers the key? Because the Lord is fully aware that our hearts are prone to wander. He knows well we need correction from time to time and he sends us those who can instruct and guide us and continue to strengthen us in our walk with him. 
That's grace. That's God's love evidenced in the work of the body. The thing to remember is that we have to make full use of those teachers. Otherwise, we miss the opportunity God's provided, especially if we're emerging from from some period of discipline in our lives. We've been in the wilderness, so to speak, and we've made our way back to a better place. We must, at that point, take the insurance policy God offers in teaching to keep us from the slipping back that is inevitable and the temptations that will try to bring us there. Instruction involves, by definition, a reshaping of our understanding. A reshaping. And so if we are to benefit from that instruction... We must be prepared to change our thinking, even on issues we assume are settled fact for us. Surely someone in Israel must have argued with the leaders that it was permissible for them to marry foreigners. Certainly someone made an objection and someone's response to that objection was, who said it's a problem? Who cares? I think it's fine. But now they're learning the truth from Ezra. They're seeing his reaction, which concerns them knowing his godliness. And the question is, how do you respond to that learning? Defensively? dismissively or do you embrace the truth and recognize your own error i've always said i continue to say i'd rather know the truth than be right i'd rather know the truth than be right if they're to benefit from the lord's grace they had to be ready to be convicted and ready to respond and it's the truth for all time if we're ever going to benefit from the instruction of the lord we always have to have a mindset that is looking and ready for conviction embraces it when it's appropriate with the resulting repentance and moves forward with the new learning But in this case, the outcome is far from certain. We don't know yet if this small pocket of repentance is going to define for the whole the response to Ezra's concern or whether it is truly an exception, a remnant within the remnant, so to speak. They are presently married to foreign wives. Some of them have children. These are not relationships any different than the ones we maintain. The love would be just as intense. The family unit just as strong. They are going to feel sorrow over what they've done, but that in itself does not address the central issue. There's no indication the Lord is prepared to forgive them, even at this early point. We only see the truth spoken and conviction taking hold. So now Ezra takes the next step on behalf of the people to move them forward from the first blush of repentance to acting in accordance with repentance. Verses 5 through 15. But at the evening offering, I rose from my humiliation even with my garment and my robe torn. And I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God and said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity and to plunder and to open shame as it is at this day. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving to raise up the house of our God to restore its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanliness of the peoples of the land, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end, and with their impurity. 
So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt and for no one can stand before you because of this. So as the teacher and the leader, a leader of sorts, Ezra, offers what is essentially an intercessory prayer on behalf of the people of Israel. Remember, Ezra is also a priest, so it's especially the case that he's qualified to make an intercessory prayer on behalf of the people. It says he rises from that place of sitting at about 3 p.m., the time of the evening offering, 3 p.m. He is disheveled, his clothes are torn, and his head and his face are bleeding from the hair being pulled out by the roots. And then it says he stretches out his arms to his side in prayer. Does anything about that situation strike a bell in your memory? Mid-afternoon sacrifice, torn clothing, bleeding body, arms outstretched, interceding for the sins of Israel. His actions are a clear picture of the Christ who is to come. Jesus was crucified to win forgiveness for the sins of his people. He was sacrificed at 3 p.m. He died at 3 p.m. His clothes were torn, his body bloodied, and his arms outstretched. Ezra is the priest and the prophet and, to a degree, the leader of Israel in this moment. And in those similarities, he's picturing the work of the Lord in a future day. Another time when Israel will go astray and he will need someone to save them from their sins. Ezra's prayer is one of the great intercessory prayers in the Old Testament. It is obviously heartfelt and impassioned. You can hear it in his voice. He calls upon the Lord to overlook the obvious sins of Israel, the repeated sins of Israel. But I also find it interesting the way he begins his prayer. He associates himself with the people. There's no you here. It's we. Right from the start. Ezra did nothing wrong. Nevertheless, he throws himself in with their lot. Why? Because he's recognizing an essential characteristic of the covenant that stands between God and Israel, the old covenant. In the Old Covenant, everyone in the nation of Israel is bound to the same standard or else they all suffer the same penalty. It's a national covenant with a people. And unless all Israel does everything right, all Israel receives all of the penalties. We covered this when we looked both in Revelation and recently in Exodus. So in other words, Ezra's going to suffer regardless of what he may have personally done, because whatever response the Lord undertakes against this people, according to the terms of the covenant, will come against all of them. Just as righteous Daniel suffered when Israel sinned in the first case and they were all carted off to Babylon. Likewise, if God brings another army down from the north, Ezra's going with them. So this isn't just some association for the purpose of identifying with them or making them feel better or whatever. It's true. He's as much at fault at this point as they are. Then Ezra recounts the mercy and the patience of the Lord through past generations. This is another good quality of intercessory prayer. In general, it's always a good practice in prayer to recount the Lord's faithfulness, much in the way you sometimes see Moses doing for the sake of Israel, where he reminds God of his own promises and of God's potential for mercy and for grace. It's not a manipulative method. It's just a good characteristic for its truth. And in the recounting of God's past patience and past mercy, 
Ezra is indirectly appealing for more of the same. He says Israel had sinned in a very common way, very similar way in the past. And in that earlier moment, God had brought them discipline, but then he had showed them mercy and restored them. And then in verse 8, Ezra says, for this little brief moment, we've had grace. Why does he emphasize the briefness of the grace? It's to emphasize that it could all evaporate in a second, that it's tenuous. Israel has been taking the Lord's mercy and grace for granted when they sinned. God has been keeping their enemies at bay. He's brought them wealth from the kings of Persia. Had God had the will to turn those things off in an instant, then where would Israel stand? All the while, the people were sinning against the Lord, daring him to remove that favor, it would appear. And then in verse 10, Ezra offers that group confession and that appeal for mercy. I love the line. What can we say? In other words, we have no excuse. We have no defense. We have disobeyed your commandments. If you only permitted a remnant to return following the last time we all sinned, then how can we expect you to leave even one of us as a remnant now? And so he says, we throw ourselves on your mercy. This is a wonderful model for confessional prayer in the case of our own sin or intercessory prayer in the case of another's. Admit the guilt and the shame for having disobeyed the word. No excuses, no defense. For honestly, there never is one. Recognize that your sin was a matter of disobedience, not of ignorance, not of circumstance. Acknowledge the Lord has the right and the willingness to punish sin. Do not take his mercy for granted. Confess your sin of testing the Lord's patience and kindness in that you were willing to sin while yet he was still showing us mercy and grace. Lastly, seek once again his mercy conditioned, though, on a sincere desire to repent and turn from the sin. We've seen all of this in this confessionary prayer, but for the last step. For Ezra cannot do that on their behalf. He cannot turn them from that sin. They must turn on their own. So in the final chapter, we learn now the people's response. And for many, the chapter that ends Ezra is a difficult one for what we see taking place under the approval of the Lord. Keeping in mind the full context of what we just covered in chapter 9 helps us understand why chapter 10 goes the way it does. So let's begin in 10 verses 1 through 4. Now, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women and children, gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. If there was ever a doubt that Ezra is the leader... It becomes apparent in this moment, doesn't it? Even as he's interceding for the people, it says, even while he's still praying, reminds me of the moment of Rebecca at the well, right? Even while he's still praying, this large assembly, perhaps because of what they hear in the prayer, recognize they have to act in accordance with repentance. They come to him, we're told, weeping bitterly, which would mean they have a recognition of their mistake and perhaps a fear at the prospect of what might happen if the Lord's wrath were to descend upon them. And in the midst of that, two men particularly step forward to speak on behalf of this crowd, it would seem. And they admit to Ezra their unfaithfulness as a crowd. They're saying, we have been unfaithful to the Lord in marrying these women. 
And then they spontaneously stir the people to act courageously. They turn to Ezra and they say, we know what we need to do. The answer is clear. We need to correct this mistake. But we need you to make it happen. We need your courage for us to act and bring us back into compliance with the covenant. This is a very interesting study on leadership, not one we have enough time for. We'll spend more time on the topic of leadership when we look at Nehemiah. But leadership is sometimes about doing things for people that they can't do for themselves. Not taking the work upon yourself, but in taking the decisions upon yourself. In making the conclusions that they know they have to make for themselves. And leading them into doing what they know they otherwise need to do, but don't seem to have the wherewithal to take action on. The Lord gives us men and women who have that capacity for the very reason that we are sheep and need shepherds. Specifically in this case, they know they have to put away these foreign wives and children. But where do you begin on something like that? The term put away is a term that always carries the same meaning wherever it appears in the Bible. It means a divorce. It's the same word used in Deuteronomy in conjunction with Moses issuing a certificate of divorce. Same Hebrew word. It's the same description of what Abraham did in separating himself from Hagar and Ishmael. And in this case, it's for a very similar purpose as Abraham, to put an end to an illicit relationship that stood in the way of obedience to the Lord. These two men make that proposal to Ezra. We all need to divorce our wives and send away our children if we are to be in compliance with this law. But we don't know how to do this. Or maybe another way to say it is we can't bring ourselves to do this. Act now. Stand up, they say to the man. Act now and bring us through this in a courageous way. Leaders have at times the difficult role of applying the truth through example, even if that extends into the lives of others. We talk in times about interventions. Five people show up at a friend's house and force him or her to do the right thing in love and in a desire to, to get them to do what they need to do. In a sense, you can say there are going to be times in the life of the body of Christ when leaders who have established their knowledge and their character and their authority through those two things will have an opportunity to step into someone's life and grab them by the collar, so to speak, and say, this is something you have to go do. And I'm not asking you. Let's go do it and bring someone to a place where they need to be. And God uses that to our benefit when it's necessary. These two men have asked Ezra to take that role on. Look what he does in verse five. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests, the Levites and all Israel, take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took the oath. Then Ezra rose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib. Although he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and all Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the leaders and all the elders, all his possessions would be forfeited and he himself excluded from the assembly of the exiles. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month of the 20th of the month and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. Kind of reads like a Hollywood script, doesn't it? I can hear the thunder over their heads as they're sitting there. It's a dark and stormy night, right? Ezra rises, and as a priest, he leads all the people, including the priests, into an oath. Here's another interesting principle, I think, of how teaching leads into leadership, which then leads into exhortation. There's safety and strength in numbers. And often, 
We surround ourselves with people for fellowship, but in truth, the most important reason we gather together is for the combined power of men and women compelled by the word of God to do the right thing. It's much harder to stand out and sin amongst a crowd of people doing the right thing. But when all are doing the wrong thing and a man steps in with the truth and causes repentance and brings them all to a different state of mind, you see the same principle working in reverse. No one wants to be the first to divorce their wife unless the rest are coming with me. Wouldn't you hate to be the one who divorces and then after you do it, everyone else changes their mind? So there's a sense here of which if we're going to do the right thing, we all need to do this together. And the strength of that change gives courage to the group. So these two men ask for that to happen and Ezra responds. Ezra asks all of them to take an oath and that's his way of assuring 100% participate in the outcome. An oath would have been binding to the point of death. And so they all take an oath right there on the spot that they who have foreign wives and children would put them away or divorce them. Now then, following that, Ezra calls an assembly of all Israel in Jerusalem so that the rest of the nation could address their sin as well, to bring the whole nation into this moment. And in fact, the rule goes out that if any man refuses to become a part of this assembly, he is automatically excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and he forfeits all his property. That's, in other words, the nation was going to be purged of these foreign wives and their disobedient families one way or another, either because you gave them up or because you were kicked out with them. Then Ezra begins this period of fasting and prayer in the home of a fellow priest. And we imagine he's seeking the Lord's wisdom and the Lord's mercy in the midst of all of this. Meanwhile, it takes these three days for all the people to assemble. So that's Ezra's period of time an intercession over this, hoping to see the outcome play out as he expects. The people finally assemble and they're all trembling out of fear over the matter. And you remember how many people came down in the first exile, right? 50,000 or so. And then you had the second group that came now with Ezra of another few thousand. And on top of that, you have a 100 years in between where people are growing their families, presumably. So when you say all Israel assembles, this is a lot of people, hundreds of thousands of people probably in this moment. And then the mention of the rain. It's a very interesting detail, isn't it? This isn't the kind of thing you'd find in the Bible normally. And the sunset, you know, it's, it's detail of a romance novel, not of the Bible. And you wonder, well, then why did God include this? Because it can't be just superfluous. There's a reason for it. Well, falling rain in Scripture is a consistent symbol of a particular idea. It's a consistent picture in Scripture. It's used in parables, for example, to represent the grace of God. And in the Old Testament, we see the Lord withholding rain when his people were in rebellion, but then bringing beneficial rain whenever fellowship is being restored. And in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews uses it as a picture of grace the field on which the rain falls frequently. It's used in the parables that Jesus teaches at times. And so in this moment, knowing its general application in Scripture, we naturally come to the conclusion that God included this very interesting detail. It's really a commentary on God's part of his view of these proceedings. While we do not have in chapter 10 a specific verse that says God was pleased at the divorce, for I never think you would find such a comment being made, his indirect approval of what's taking place is exemplified through this one detail. Then Ezra addresses the assembly. Verse 10. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. And then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That's right. As you have said, so it is our duty to do so. But there are many people. And it is the rainy season, 
And we are not able to stand in the open, nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly and let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of each city until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jahaziel, the son of Tikvah, opposed this with Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levites supporting them. So Ezra's command of the people is simple, and yet it's very bold. He says, you guys have sinned, you've got to confess it, and you've got to do the Lord's will. In other words, the only solution to your problem is to admit you're wrong and then do the right thing. No wonder he's been in fasting and prayer for three days, because he had to be terrified at what would come from that statement. He must have been wondering, did he have the guts to actually say that? Or would he compromise in some way to avoid a negative response. And if he did hold the line, what would the response be? A nation that ran from that response or ran from that command or killed him like prophets were often killed when they were the ones to speak up. In fact, prophets have been killed for far less than demanding that everyone divorce their wives. But Ezra demonstrates the courage to call that people to do the Lord's will. And any time we call for God's people to do the Lord's will, we are risking alienating ourselves from them or them from us, to be more specific. Because inevitably, some people will respond favorably while others will reject us in response to the conviction that God's word brings them. And if you can't stomach the rejection that comes from preaching God's word, then you need to get into a different line of work. God's people can't continue in their sin and expect to be forgiven for it. You can't persist in these sinful relationships that got you into trouble in the first place and yet at the same time assume that somehow God will overlook it because you had a sorry heart for a day. That's especially true given the reason for the prohibition in the first place. God's instructions were for their good to protect them from the idolatry that would soon follow in these relationships. So there really is no way to fix it except that the relationship be stopped. Had they been allowed to continue in these relationships, it would have meant the end of Israel. Or at least it would have meant the end of that remnant. There is no compromise possible. I think that's what makes this chapter so compelling and at the same time so difficult for us theologically because there really isn't an option given the circumstances. In this case, there is no compromise possible. If you were to go to Luke 18 for a moment, you'd find Jesus saying this, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much as that time and in the age to come eternal life. And in Matthew, he says this, Matthew 10:34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In light of the eternal ramifications, allegiance to the Lord has to take precedence over any earthly, fleshly relationship because of the eternal ramifications of that decision. We can be sure these men love their wives. We can be sure they love their children. And we can also be sure that their relationships were the consequence of disobedience to the Lord and would have been the end of their family and of Israel if they persisted. In light of that alternative, the end of these familial relationships had to be the consequence. Ezra's courage is rewarded, we see in verse 12, when God's people respond and notice in unison, and this is a crowd that we've already heard described as one of both fathers and their family, including their children. And yet in unison, they all have the same conclusion. 
that obedience to the word of God mandates this outcome. There is no more pleasing response for any teacher of God's word than that the people of God would respond in this way. They do ask for one minor concession, though. They say, look, it's the rainy season, if you haven't noticed. We're getting poured on, which means it's late autumn, November, December time frame. And they say, we have a lot of families who've been impacted by this sin. A lot of people have apparently made the choice to marry into the local culture. So we need some time, logistically, to carry this out. In other words, the process of separating and sending families away is going to require that we get appointments. So we need you to set up appointed times when we can travel, when it's not the rainy season, and we're not standing outside, and we're not having to deal with all of the weather. It's going to be inhumane if we have to send our wives and our children packing in cold, wet weather at this time of year, right before the winter. So they're asking for a delay for weather purposes and a delay for an orderly process so that judges can be appointed and, and elders can get involved. And be remember, there, there needs to be a judge. This is a court process. They have to go through a divorce. All of this has to take place in an orderly fashion. We know elsewhere in Scripture the Lord declares that he hates divorce. And we know the New Testament scripture forbids it. So we can safely assume the Lord was not pleased to watch these divorces taking place. Nevertheless, it was Israel's sin that prompted the need for this outcome. Their marriages were the sinful consequence of an earlier sin. In a sense, we can say that Israel had already made this sin of divorce necessary when they chose to enter into illegitimate marriages in the first place. So the Lord is grieving with them over the necessity of this and certainly is not pleased that divorce is the outcome. But it is not as though God can separate one sin from the other in this case. For the only way to rectify the first is to have this second event take place. Furthermore, these marriages couldn't stand without doing greater damage to Israel's future and God's plan for his people. They were illegitimate marriages. As long as they persisted, the sin persisted. Only by separation does the sin end. And God's plan for Israel become restored in the process. And so as we consider what does it say about God and about divorce that this was allowed or commanded, we have to understand that these marriages were due to end because they were sinful in the first place. They were illegitimate marriages. They were against the law of God. When you do something that is against the law, it is unlawful by definition. It is in a sense like a parent who says the pain of this spanking is the necessity of the mistake you made a minute ago. We do see there are a few dissenters here, and we might expect that there would be a few dissenters. In fact, the point of the mentioning of these dissenters is to emphasize how few there were. There's only a handful in all of the thousands and thousands of Israel who object to this. And I think the fact that the women and the children are in the unison of the voices suggests us that the conviction of the Spirit was working broadly in that day to ease the separation and to make this not as hard as it could have been. Let's put it that way. Mothers and children separated and sad for that result. Those women would have married men who could have cared for them for their entire life and given them children with great happiness if they had not married Israelites. So it was the sin of the men taking women they had no business taking that was the cause, the direct cause for all of what has followed. And so we don't put any of this at God's feet. These are the natural consequences of sin. So if those women were unhappy at the result, they should have been unhappy at the men and frankly, themselves for having entered into these marriages. Even though there are a few dissenters, the majority agrees, and so the separations are ordered and they are carried out obediently. And then we end in verses 16 onward. We'll read the rest, 16 through all of the rest of the chapter to 44. A lot of names again. Verse 16, but the exiles did so. 
And as were the priests selected men who were heads of fathers' households for each of their fathers' households, all of them by name. So they convened on the first day of the tenth month to investigate the matter. They finished investigating all the men who had married foreign wives by the first day of the first month. So that's three months of work. Among the sons of the priests who had married foreign wives were found of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, Maasiah, Eliezer, Jerob, and Gedaliah. They pledged to put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock of their offense. Of the sons of Imer there were Hanani, Zebediah, and of the sons of Harim, Maasiah, Elijah, Shehemiah, Jehiel, Uzziah, and of the sons of Pashur, Elioenai, Maasiah, Ishmael, Nathaniel, Josabab, and Elisah. Of the Levites there were Josabad, Shimiel, Kelaiah, that is Kalida, Pethahiah, Judah, Eliezer, of the singers, Eliashib, and of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri. Of Israel, of the sons of Parosh, there were Ramaiah, Isaiah, Malkijah, Majamin, Eleazar, Malkijah, Benaniah, and of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah. And of the sons of Zatu, Elioni, Eliashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabab, and Aziza. I have to stop every now and then just so my tongue kind of unwraps. And of the sons of Bebei, Jehohanan, Hananiah, Zebiah, Athliah, and of the sons of Bani, Meshulam, Maluk, and Adadiah, and Jashub, Sheel, and Jeremuth. And of the sons of Pahath, Moab, Adna, Chelai, Benaniah, Maasiah, Mataniah, Bezalel. We mentioned calling all these kids for dinner. <laughs> Bezalel. Benuei, Manasseh, and of the sons of Haram, Eliezer, Aishajah, Malachijah, Shemaiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Maluk, Shemariah, and of the sons of Hashum, Matata, Zabab, Elephetlet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, Shimeah, of the sons of Benai, Maadiah, Amram, Uil, Benaniah, Bedadiah, Chaluhai, Chaluhi. I don't think it's Chaluhi. That's the thing you buy at the Mexican fair. It's like covered in sugar. That doesn't really help because they're all covered in sugar. Chalupa, that's the one I'm thinking of, sorry. Benaiah, Maramuth, Elishib, Mataniah, Matani, Jasu, Bani, Binui, Shamai, Shilamiah, Nathan, Adai, Makanabai, I think I got that one right, Makanabai, Shashai, Sharai, Azarel, Shelemiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph. Why can't we have more of that? Of the sons of Nebu, there were Jael, Mattathiah, Zebab, Zabina, Jadai, Joel, and Benaniah. All of these had married foreign wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. <laughs> but as we wrap up, these separations were clearly difficult. But they reinforce the truth that sin has consequences. And these families were suffering as a result of their father's sins. The wives suffered. The children suffered. They endured that pain of separation. But it's not unexpected that when we have to act in accordance with repentance to put away sin, that there will be pain associated with decisions that we may have already made. In the end, this moment's a reminder that a people restored without a leader are a people ripe to fall again. You need to be restored in worship. 
You need to be reminded of the truth of God's word, but you also need leaders who can build character and call for perseverance in the face of temptations to sin. And that's step three. So when we come back, step three of restoration begins in the book of Nehemiah with God presenting that third quality of a leader now who comes with a whole bunch of of new lessons for how God restores men and women out of a period of discipline. So we'll do that coming back into the new book. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, please forgive us, Father, for the sins that we make so commonly in our life, Father. Forgive us, for, forgive us, Father, for taking your grace for granted, for overlooking your patience, for thinking that our sin can take place with impunity. And then, Father, we open your word and we remember that even the people you called your people, the apple of your eye, the ones for whom you said the world will bow down to, the ones you said would be the chief nation on the earth, the ones you said, Father, would be your wife. This people, Father, you disciplined in such a harsh way when they disobeyed for their own good. So, Father, how can we escape when we have sinned against such greater grace you've given us in the new covenant? So I know, Father, we have so much to, to, to appeal for mercy upon you and, and so many reasons, Father, you have to act against us. But we just look, Father, for the same mercy and grace you gave to the people of Israel on this day. But we also know, Father, you look to us to turn from our sin and to act in accordance with the repentance. And that in that way, Father, we can receive the restoration we want. And I ask, Father, you give us the courage to do it with others around us to help us make that step. Leaders, teachers, others who would encourage us to do what's right. And for those around us who need that encouragement, Father, let us be a use to them in that way as well. Let us all live up to the standards you've given so that we would have the the courage, and the standing to cause others to obey as well. And in all this, Father, we know the grace that you've given us is a grace that knows no limit. And for that, Father, we will be eternally thankful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.